You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Oh, gracious Father God, we want to say thank you. Lord, as we're coming to our final moments of camp meeting, it feels like preparation day is here. But Lord, we want to receive a few more blessings. Lord, it seems like it's been too long that we've been able to come together, and now we just want to be that dry sponge to soak up as much as we can. So Lord, be with those that are yet trying to make their way here to the meeting, bear them here safely. The rain is trying to keep some away, I'm sure, but Lord, we want to be here. And so I just pray that you would provide that way for each one. Father, we just thank you that we can have these times to come outside and be refreshed, to be encouraged, to be challenged in our walk. And I want to pray for our brother Dave and thank you so much for the heart of study and the desire that he has in his heart to continue to be a teacher for the people of God. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone who's been coming along to the, the meetings. When I was teaching, I always used to tell people that if the teacher wasn't having fun, there's no reason to expect the kids to learn anything. And I've been having fun. <laughs> this, is, this is what gets me up in the morning, so I could, uh, I could talk about it all day long, and the problem is that sometimes I do. And uh, I will warn you that I did some revising on this presentation. I got done with it about 15 minutes ago, and I'm not positive if I'll be able to hold tight to the schedule. I may go a little bit long, so if you have to leave... No hard feelings, I understand. But if you can stay, there's some really good stuff at the end. <laughs> well, screens are up. Where the battle lies today? You know, we've traced, uh, traced a story starting 6,000 years ago, give or take, and now we're down to today. There is a temptation even within the Adventist church, to assume that life will go on as it always has. That what we see is what will always be with variations. And God says no. But it's a process to get there. We looked at Lucifer's accusations on Monday, I believe it was, and I think again on Tuesday, maybe not so much yesterday and uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And, and I know I haven't really done a, a thorough job of explaining every detail about this, but I postulated to you that the first six accusations were resolved and eliminated by the life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Praise the Lord. But I also said that the last three are still on the table. And that's, that's kind of a, you know, that's an interesting uh, assertion. And, and I, you know, I, I thank you for your patience and not having produced uh, ample evidence to support that yet, but I want to try and do that today. Uh, one thing I should point out, though, is that God has already been proven right on the first six. So if he's proven right on seven and eight, number three just, or number uh, nine just evaporates, right? See how that works? So we're down to two things. 
This is where the battle lies today. Does God have a plan for that? Oh, yeah, of course he has a plan for that. Do we know what the plan for that is? Remember that statement? We must know the plan of the battle in order to cooperate with the Lord. That's my burden in life. I want to understand the plan of the battle. As we enter these closing scenes of the great controversy, at this stage of the great controversy, of course it continues for another thousand years, so to speak, but this part of the great controversy, here's an important thought. Satan deceives and corrupts the world, but in so doing, he is only carrying on his original work. He has introduced no new arguments. He has created no new empire of darkness from which to draw supplies for the furtherance of his deceptions. Sin that was sin in the beginning is sin today, and sin, the apostle declares, is the transgression of God's law. This is why we started with Lucifer. If we understand how he worked in heaven, we have a leg up, so to speak, in understanding how he's going to work in our day. He has no new arguments. He has no new empire of darkness. There's nothing new here. Statement goes on. In these days, it is Satan's determined purpose to intensify sin by making it legal in the children of disobedience. He is to reveal to the world and to heaven what is the order and result of a government carried on according to his ideas of administration and law. He is working with secret yet with intense zeal in both church and state to cause men to throw off all the restraints of God's law and take a decided stand with him in the ranks of rebellion. But when his work is accomplished, the Lord will interpose and vindicate his honor as the supreme ruler of the universe. He is seeking to make sin legal. And we're talking both church and state. So we're talking laws and the state side. There are a few things that I think classify as sin that have been made legal in various countries of recent years. I think that gives us some idea of where we're at in this process. Well, we looked at this uh, series of events. That's what we've covered in the last four days. And the stunningly obvious, it <laughs> seems to me, you know, after having looked at it a bunch, but the stunningly obvious thing to do is to recognize that those two columns there are all pointed down. <laughs> and we've got two more events that were called to deal with in the last days. That's where we're at. The plan for today will be to get an idea of what these last two developments will look like and then see how that plays out in, into resolving those last two accusations. Okay, with me? That's where we're going. Uh, let's not show up on the bottom. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Back in Kellogg's day, Ellen White spoke of the alpha of apostasy and said that there was an omega which was yet to come, okay? And I likened that to the acorn and the oak tree. So let's just get a little quick look at this here. The most obvious problem in the alpha was pantheism. Actually, it's kind of funny. It was not the most obvious problem in the day. It's become the most obvious problem from our writings of the, of the, the era, uh, a lot of church members didn't really recognize the whole pantheism issue much at the time. That's a little alarming in some ways, but whatever. In the writings of Ellen White, that's the area that she does deal with the most, and so that's what has attracted and, and you know, kind of held, held our attention in the decades and the, actually the century now since. 
under the concept of pantheism, all men, and ladies too, uh, saints and sinners alike become at least partially divine because God is everywhere, and the heavenly sanctuary becomes wherever God is. And that was the meaning of that book title, Living Temple. This was the living temple right here, because I am God's sanctuary, you see. God dwells within me because there's divinity in everyone. Beyond the theoretical, theological issues this raises, there comes a very strong sense of entitlement. Or, I don't know, maybe that's not the best word. I could probably think of some sort of a near synonym I'd like better. Uh, privilege or, or exalted position, right? You know, hey, I'm God. That makes me pretty important. Okay. Spiritualism, predicted to be a part of the final apostasy, of course, has more facets to it than we often think of. We often think of the, you know, Aunt Margaret coming back from the dead type of spiritualism, okay? That's a real thing. Um, I know too many people who've experienced that, even within my own family. But that's not the only aspect of spiritualism. Spiritualism declares that there is no death. Okay, that's where we get that part. But there's no sin, no judgment, no retribution that men are unfallen demigods, that desire is the highest law, and that man is accountable only to himself. The barriers that God has erected to guard truth, purity, and reverence are broken down, and many are thus emboldened in sin. Okay, so spiritualism, I just want to make the point that it, it's, it embraces a little bit more than just Aunt Margaret, okay? This is more the kind of spiritualism Kellogg was involved with. Uh, it's plenty popular in our day as well. Um, you can't avoid it. <laughs> this is one part of the Omega going on. The light is given to me in regard to the poor understanding of those that have been in the truth, that these sophistries, speaking of Kellogg's brand of spiritualism, that these sophistries and this mysticism and doing away with the personality of God and with the personality of Christ will get the whole room of the heart all ready for these miracles, that Satan will come to work right in our midst. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Miracles. Miracles. That's what I want to pull your attention to out of that statement right there. This mysticism prepares the way for miracles to be accepted. What's the deal with miracles? Well, okay, we want to try and get some um, understanding of the connection here. Okay? Perhaps the most basic thing to remember about Satan's deception is his fundamental, frequent, basic use of counterfeits, right? Idols to take the place of God, human sacrifice in the Old Testament taking, you know, taking place of, you know, the, the animal sacrifices that God had specified, Sunday for Sabbath, the Mass for the, you know, ministry of Christ, all this sort of thing, right? <laughs> At the end of time, when we talk about the devil counterfeiting something, Probably for most of us, the first thing that pops into mind is this. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ in different places, excuse me, different parts of the earth. Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. That's going to happen. 
But that's not where the counterfeiting begins. Let's, if we wait till, the, you know, uh, I'm, okay, I, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but, oh, man, I cringe when I hear my brethren and sisters say things like, well, the devil's going to personate Christ, but we can always tell the difference because Jesus' feet never really touched the ground. Well, that's true. <laughs> but friends, if that's what you're dependent on to keep you safe through the time of the, the, time of the end, I, I, I really hope you do some more study somewhere along the line and, and just, just take hold of something a little bit more, more than that. Okay, Satan doesn't just imitate or impersonate Christ. It, it, that starts long before. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work, and before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. What is that counterfeit? And different ones over different decades have proposed different answers to that question. I remember growing up in the late 60s, early 70s type of thing. The, um, there was a lot of concern, and justly so, I'm not minimizing it, but there was a lot of concern with the charismatic movement. And that was seen as the counterfeit to the revival of true godliness. Yeah, okay. Does that mean the revival of true godliness is speaking in tongues? You know, I mean, if, if, if I hand you a counterfeit dollar bill, or a, let's, make, let's make it worth something here, if I hand you a counterfeit hundred dollar bill, and I say, that's a counterfeit, what's the real going to look like? Something like the counterfeit. Yeah, that's a very bad counterfeit. You follow what I'm saying? <laughs> so when we identify the counterfeit and say it's, it's speaking in tongues or the charismatic movement or a few other things that I've heard mentioned, we're really also defining the real. With me on that? Or, or kind of illustrating it or, or saying this is what it's, it ought to look like. If this is the counterfeit, then the real one ought to look about like that. You know, <laughs> it ought to look similar somehow, okay? So what's, let, let's work it the other way. Instead of saying this is the counterfeit and going backwards, let's start with primitive godliness. What did primitive godliness look like? Today, we would call it medical missionary. This is the early church. Love, compassion, all that stuff. Did, did you know that the entire concept of a hospital is a Christian idea? There was nothing like a hospital prior to Christianity because no culture, no nation, no religion had a mandate to care for the poor, the sick, and the, and the suffering. Christians did. They invented hospitals. That's from the AMA, not from me. <laughs> so what's the counterfeit going to look like? Medical missionary work. Just saying. I'm going to support that. Here we go. And why did the, why did the early church look like medical missionary work? 
Because that's what Jesus told them to do, right? Preach the kingdom and heal the sick. Every time he sent them out, he included heal the sick. Okay. So I, I, I propose that the counterfeit is going to look like medical missionary work, at least superficially. So how do I know that? Well, it's a real tricky, it's a, it's a great research trick. I just kept reading the book. We're looking at great controversy. I just kept on going a chapter or two, okay? Uh, the idea of the devil's counterfeit just keeps showing up. It's not a new thought. But what worries me is that we've been so focused on counterfeit doctrine, Sunday instead of Sabbath, conscious dead instead of unconscious dead, that we might easily overlook the devil's counterfeit of the practical, tangible work Christ's people are supposed to be doing. The last great delusion is soon to open before us. Antichrist is to perform his marvelous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. By their testimony, every statement and miracle must be tested. This is certainly true and applicable to uh, doctrine, right? It's proved by the, uh, where is it, uh, by the Holy Scriptures, right? Up on line two, what's this emphasis on the marvelous works? That's not doctrine. Right? It's the marvelous works that need to be proved, and the doctrine, don't get me wrong, but the marvelous works also need to be proved by Scripture. Hmm, marvelous works, miracles. What's going on with that? Satan can present a counterfeit so closely resembling the truth that it deceives those who are willing to be deceived. Well, that's crazy. Nobody's willing to be deceived. That would be foolish. Yes, it would, but there's an ellipsis at the end of that. The sentence isn't done. What do you suppose it takes to qualify as willing to be deceived? Yeah, that's important, but that's not what this statement says. What does it take to be willing to be deceived? Here I commence to step on toes. Those who desire to shun the self-denial and sacrifice demanded of the truth. That's all it takes to be willing to be deceived. How does that fit in? I mean, that certainly can't keep me from finishing up my Bible studies and understanding the truth. Well, that's part of it. The whole great controversy <laughs> is over the issue of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Lucifer said, God didn't do that. I don't have to. And God says, yes, I do. I'll show you on the cross. And yes, that's the only way that that the universe works is self-denial and self-sacrifice. Okay, well, let's see, let's go on. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Many who have had great light will fail to walk in the light because they have not become one with Christ. His instruction is not palatable to them. 
okay, well, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, if you haven't heard this statement before, right? The, these works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists in particular to the test. That's, that's kind of an interesting thought. But don't let that overshadow the remainder of the statement there. What does it mean to become one with Christ? It means to embrace self-denial and self-sacrifice. What part of Christ's instruction are people possibly finding not palatable? Self-denial and self-sacrifice. Let's go back to Satan impersonating Jesus here. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come, Christ has come. The, pop, the people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, not like me who rattle ridiculously. Sorry about that. Yet full of melody, in gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people and then in his assumed character of Christ. He claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday. We know this, but notice this part. Why is he doing that? Because he's counterfeiting Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He's doing exactly what he has to do. Satan will come in to deceive, if possible, the very elect. He claims to be Christ, and he is coming in pretending to be the great medical missionary. Well, if he's pretending to be the great medical missionary, what do you suppose God's people ought to be? Medical missionaries. Now, I don't mean you have to be doing appendectomies or something. That's not what it takes to be a medical missionary. Raking leaves for the little old lady down the street who can't keep her yard up anymore, that's medical missionary work. Before we ever called it, well, the first time medical missionary was ever used in an Adventist publication was 1893. Before that, we called it Christian help work or the benevolent work. All it means is be nice to people. Now, if you're a physician, or a nurse, or a nurse practitioner, or uh, you know, any of that stuff, right? If you're a medical professional, you have extra talents. Praise the Lord, use them. But be nice to people. <laughs> okay, what's going on? Christ's method alone will give true success. Notice the second word in this statement here. It's singular. This is not talking about all the little distinctions we could find in Jesus' work, right? One time he used clay, right? Healed a blind man's eyes. Another time he touched the man. Another time he just spoke words of forgiveness and healing. That's not what we're talking about. This singular method is the bigger one, right? It's the one that stands out about above all others. We saw this in our second meeting, right? The great object that brought Christ to the earth was to reveal the Father. That's the method we're looking for. God is love. This was the great truth that Christ came to the world to reveal. The object of Christ's mission to the world was to reveal the Father. In his, all his ministry, all his self-denial and self-sacrifice, Christ's object was to reveal God to the world. Praise the Lord, Jesus did that. That's so nice. Ah, uh, yeah. But... The world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ, which is the same as a revelation of the Father, right? He that has seen me has seen the Father, Philip. <laughs> yeah. 
What the world needs today is the light of Christ's example reflected from the lives of Christ-like men and women for the simple reason that Jesus is not here right now. He's in heaven. To get a revelation of Christ, he has to work through you and me. Hearts will be captivated, not by the glory of the man, but by the inward adorning of an abiding Christ. It is the revelation of Christ in the man that captivates the hearts of men and women. They behold the beautiful character of Christ revealed by good works. Remember Kellogg back in 1893? Started his sermon off with good works. He was on to something. That's more than that. God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. Identical is a very strong word. Disentangle is also a pretty strong word. What do you suppose a worldly policy might be? We're supposed to get disentangled from it. And I'm not going to try to give you a point-by-point -point definition, but I think I'm safe in saying worldly policy is anything that keeps you from taking up a work identical to the work of Christ. That's where we're supposed to be. That's where we have to be at the end of time. The glory of the character of Christ can never be expressed in words. Oh, where did we hear that thought before? Human language is inadequate to reveal it. It must be made manifest in the life. It is to be manifest in the individual Christian, in the family, in the church, in the ministry of the word, and in every institution established by God's people. That is our purpose, to manifest the character of the Father. And we need to, I don't mean to be rude, but we need to wake up just a little bit and recognize that stuff that was impossible for Jesus is very likely impossible for us. If he could not reveal the Father through words alone, I submit that, yeah, I don't think we can either. <laughs> and that's why in our work of revealing the character of God, we need to use the same methods, with an S on the end, plural this time, that Jesus used. Christ, the great medical missionary, is our example. He healed the sick and preached the gospel. In his service, healing and teaching were linked closely together. Today, they are not to be separated. We need a combined ministry, a combined witness of preaching, teaching, helping, healing. That's what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit never has and never will in the future divorce the medical missionary work from the gospel ministry. They cannot be divorced. Bound up with Jesus Christ, the ministry of the word, and the healing of the sick are one. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Notice the definite article there. This is not a true interpretation. This is the true interpretation. Which means, I submit, that any other interpretation is to a degree false. With me on that? The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um... 
<clears throat> Scanning the notes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to jump just a little bit, uh, a little different thought. It's related, but anyhow. Something that worries me is when I hear the saints say something like, Oh, my, this world is getting so bad, Jesus has to come soon. A memo. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't have to come soon. He's the general of the army. And he never loses sight of the mission at hand. He's not waiting for the world to get some particular shade of terrible. He's working to finish off those two last accusations. Notice this statement. This is scary. When men and women, sorry ladies, when, <laughs> when people begin to weave in the human threads to compose the pattern of the web, the Lord is in no hurry. He waits until men shall lay down their own human inventions and will accept the Lord's way and the Lord's will. This is why the loud cry began in 1892 and was smothered by 1899, 1898, I think was the first statement she made like that. It was a good start. It died. The game is not over till the game is over. Run the course. <laughs> Run the course. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> okay. So, again, making a kind of a logical jump here. Uh, remember, I said that, well, Ellen White said that Lucifer said the law is arbitrary. That was the uh, seventh accusation, right? And remember, I said that the first six Jesus dealt with, but the, the last three were still on the table. Uh, Again, I appreciate your patience on that. How do I know that? Why would I even say that? I mean, come on. Jesus was here. You don't think he was going to finish the job? Well, no, he didn't finish the job. That's what I think. Here's why. In the character of God's people, a living testimony will be born that will contradict the fallacy of Satan who has declared that the law of Jehovah is arbitrary and holds its subjects under a cruel bondage. That one's still on the table. The Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the results of obedience to right principles. Now that's actually very important. Because if I'm answering Satan's charges by showing results. I'm working in the arena of cause and effect. This is not superstition. It, it's got more to it than black cats and salt over the shoulder and whatever else we tried to remember the other day. This is the language of reality, not arbitrary law. This is this is. This is real. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that can't be changed. All you can do is demonstrate it. This is kind of a summary page right here. God's final work uses the same method that Christ used during his life on earth, the revelation of the character of God. 
God's final work requires that human beings take up the same manner of work that Jesus practiced during his life on earth, because that's just what works. The revelation of God's character cannot be accomplished through words alone. Acts of mercy and healing, self-denial, self-sacrifice, are also necessary. In short, God's final work is self-sacrifice and self-denial, exemplified in, I don't care what you call it, but we often use the term medical missionary work. You can call it anything you want. But self-denial and self-sacrifice, trying to help other people. And here's the thing. Helping other people always involves self-denial and self-sacrifice. It's going to take up your time. It's going to take up your thought. It's going to take up probably some of your money. It's going to take up some effort. It might take some clothes. It might take some food. It might take who knows what. You don't help people for free. It costs you. He who lends to the no, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay. Remember that one? It's going to cost you. You'll get it back. You just gotta be patient. It may come back in heaven. <laughs> you may not get it back right away. And don't be setting stipulations on God. Say, I gave him a ten dollar bill. You gotta you gotta give me ten dollars. No, he doesn't. You'll, you'll get you'll get something, you know. Just relax. <laughs> Trust him. He'll pay you back. Okay. All of this helps us understand this statement. The truth for this time, the third angel's message is to be proclaimed with a loud voice. Right? Pastor Ross has been giving us a pretty good ex, uh, explication of, of that idea. Okay. Uh, is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power as we approach the great final test. Now, stop for just a second. This is, you know, I, I you, you can disagree or you can, you know, twist this one or, you know, whatever. This is, this is an optional type of thing. But in my mind, I rather suspect that the great final test is a synonym for the omega of apostasy. Uh, you know, omega is the last letter in the alphabet, right? It's possible that Ellen White had some other shade of meaning to it. But I'm pretty sure they're at least going to be about the same time. Is that fair to think? You know, something like that. Okay, anyhow. Proclaim with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power, as we approach the great final test. This test must come to the churches in connection with the true dots. Now, if you know what this says, don't, don't spoil the fun for anybody else. But if you don't know what the next words are, take a guess for me, nice and loud. What do you think dots represents here? In connection with the true... Okay, those are all good. I, I really expected more to say Sabbath, because I'm unsure, you know, you got Sabbath Sunday kind of thing. That's, that's a, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of a big thing in the Adventist world, I would think. Uh, the others were all good too, though. Character, I heard gospel, I heard, I may have heard somebody giving a spoiler back there, but if you came up with it honestly, bless your heart, here's what the statement says.
This test must come to the churches in connection with the true medico-missionary work, a work that has the great physician, that would be Jesus, to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. I'm, you know, just telling you folks, this whole thing of helping people, it's kind of a big issue. Because it goes right back to the heart of that other big issue I keep harping on, right? Anybody remember what that would be? Faith, okay, right? Faith, it's a big thing. Talk to a theologian, he'll tell you. Helping other people goes right back to the problem Lucifer had. If I help you, I'm giving away stuff that I could use. Maybe it's stuff that I need. What will I do if I give you something I need? Well, the, the proper answer is, I will depend on God who has promised to help to take care of me. <laughs> you know? It's like Jesus turned to Philip and he says, Philip, there's a lot of folks here. Why don't we feed them? And Philip, being a rational guy, much like myself, said, uh, that would cost a lot of money. And Jesus said, yeah, okay, well, have him sit down. <laughs> we will come to the point where we do not have what is needed other than the promise of God. Back in Ellen White's day, she wrote about Kellogg's apostasy. But her description of it included more than happened at that time. She painted a picture where the alpha was headed this is the idea of the acorn and the oak tree, right? That description is, I think, our best description of what the omega will be that we will ultimately face. I want to go through this quickly because I'm going to be pressed for time here if I don't. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists and that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in a process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded, our religion would be changed, the fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error, a new organization would be established, books of a new order would be written, a system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced, the founders of the system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work, the Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it, nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. Every specification there deserves some consideration, and I'm not going to take the time to do any of that. Sorry, we're going to go on to the end of it here. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice. Oh, well, thank you for that much. <laughs> but God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Okay. How is it that they would remove God and depend on human power? Well, it's simple. They lose faith. I've got to take care of myself. That's depending on human power. But notice this last sentence here. Where's that come from? A wise man built his house upon a rock. Right? Remember? Those kids, they have some really good songs. <laughs> this is the parable of the two houses. There were two houses. There's only one storm. That's key. 
This is not God sitting high and lifted up on his holy throne, looking down and saying, why, there's a very righteous man. I will send him April showers so that he can have May flowers. While over on this side is an evil wretch. I'm going to hit him with a Cat 5 hurricane. Ha! Huh. <laughs> it's not the way it works. It's the same storm. One house stands, one house falls. Ain't the storm's fault. For all that the Bible passage, actually, the, it's, it's so fascinating because the Bible passage uses exactly the same words. I don't have them memorized, but, but the storm beat vehemently against that house, the wise man's house. The storm beat vehemently against that house, the foolish man's house. Exactly the same words. I think God was trying to emphasize the fact that it's not the storm that makes the difference. It's the house. It's the foundation. Okay, in passing on through here, notice this thought right here, storm and tempest. Okay, so if we're going to make some sort of a, say, uh, maybe an eschatological application of the parable, what would be the storm and tempest? When is all this going to happen? Well, we have a name for it. We call it the little time of trouble. And, and, and you know, I must confess, I am not a prophet. I am not the son of a prophet. I'm pretty sure I'm not the grandson of a prophet. There's a really good chance I don't have a single prophetic gene in my body. But look at the world today, and it's, it, it's, it's not hard to believe it might happen soon. <laughs> I'm just saying, okay. The financial, political, medical, social systems of our world are close to falling. Who knows what might make it all collapse? That's the little time of trouble. That's the conditions. You know, anyhow, when it all goes down, it will not be pretty. In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. Perilous times are before us. The whole world will be involved in perplexity and distress. Disease of every kind will be upon the human family. Such ignorance as now prevails concerning the laws of health would result in great suffering, and the loss of many lives might be and the loss of many lives that might be saved. If you are a competent physician, you are qualified to do tenfold more good as a missionary for God than if you were to go forth merely as a preacher of the word. I would advise young men and women to give heed to this matter. Now, that doesn't mean you, everybody has to be uh, a fully licensed MD. It's great if you are. Use it. <laughs> Use it, okay? But at the very least, listen to this next one. <laughs> As religious aggression subverts the liberty of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions for their own sake. This is what we call a word to the wise. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. And those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. This is medical missionary work. For your own sake, learn something. <laughs> right? Learn how to give charcoal. <laughs> It's actually a pretty cool thing. Yeah. They've been teaching it 
Somebody's been teaching a hydrotherapy course. I didn't make it to it. Learn a little hydrotherapy. Not hard. You know what? This is great. Ellen White calls that stuff. Do you remember the term she uses for that, that collective kind of category of things? What what's she call it? <laughs> Can't hear a thing. Okay. The one I'm looking for, uh, sometimes they call it natural remedies. The doctors of her day like to call it rational remedies, which is the term I really like. Ellen White commonly called it simple remedies. You know what's cool about simple remedies? They're simple. <laughs> They're simple. You don't have to be a genius. It won't hurt if you are, no offense. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to take, you know, 15 years of college. Charcoal, you know, it, like, it's pretty easy. <laughs> okay, I'll give up. Let's keep going. Uh, <clears throat> okay. But at this point in time, when, when, the, when things break loose, and, you know, they've, they've kind of done that a little bit in this last year, but when things really break loose even more, when the collapse comes, there will be two teams of medical missionaries. One team will be doing a work identical to the work of Christ, while the other team will be doing a work that looks identical to the work of Christ. That's the counterfeit. Both groups will be, quotes, helping people. Why? Because given world conditions at that time, there's, that's the only thing that's going to have any impact. Right? The guy's dying of fever and starving to death and dehydrated. And you're going to give him a Bible study. Not the time. Save it. You know, he can use it, but he doesn't need it now. He needs some water, food, help, something. You know, do something for the guy. Okay? <clears throat> God's followers will be ministering to the people both for their physical and their spiritual health. This is medical missionary work. And the two are never to be divided. When you divide it, you end up with either dry theory, the missionary part with no application, or you end up with what I politely and affectionately refer to as medical mercenary work, where you're making a living, which is not unlawful, and the Lord intends that doctors should make a living, yes, but they can also be missionaries, okay? Okay, uh, God's people will be doing the same thing Jesus did when he was here. And Satan's followers? Much the same. In appearance. Anyway. Until the storm and tempest sweeps away their structure. But how could this storm sweep away the devil's house, but not the Lord's house? Is the Lord working a miracle to protect his people? No. Same storm. Both houses face the same storm. So what's the difference? Well, it's the foundation, right? One guy built on the rock. The very foundation of Christ's mission was self-denial and self-sacrifice. And selfishness lies at the foundation of all sin. Here's what happens. When everything hits the fan, and life is tough, and resources are limited there will come a point where the selfish heart is going to look at the supplies and say, I'm not giving that to you. There's only enough food for one here. And it ain't going to be you. I'm going to eat that. And if you're going to fight me for that, I'll kill you if I have to. Because that's what sin is. 
God's people, on the other hand, are going to come to the point where they have nothing, they have no resources, and yet, somehow, God provides for them to continue serving. And imagine, imagine the... Anybody Bible worker here? Bible workers, imagine this for me. Okay, Here's a guy. He's not one of God's people. But the Spirit has not left his heart entirely. He's a little decency left in him. He hasn't eaten for four days. And you see him, you say, man, you look pretty hungry. And when was the last time you ate? Well, it's, it's been four days. He says, here's a sandwich. And because he's a decent guy, he says, I can't take your sandwich. What else do you have? Oh, I don't have anything else. I can't take your food. Take it. No, I can't take it. Take it. You have to take it. What are you going to eat? I don't know. But God will provide for me. You don't have that. You need the food. But if you'd like to know how God could provide for you too, I could give you a little Bible study. <laughs> now it might not you know, roll out exactly like that, but you get my point, right? There is nothing so powerful as the manifestation of the character of God in a manner which obviously requires the faith that is depending on God to support it. It's one thing if, I've, you know, if I'm Bill Gates or something and I'm giving away $20 bills, that's very generous. But it, 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 it's, to be honest, a lot of people would ask, you know, that, that seems kind of cheap, Bill. <laughs> you know, why don't you kick it up to 100 I mean, you know, come on, you know, it's not like it's going to hurt you. But when you get down to you have nothing and you're giving it away anyhow, <laughs> that's impressive. That's what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus lived in a society where wealth was interpreted as divine honor. And here's this homeless, unemployed, itinerant ex-carpenter wandering around feeding 5,000 people at a shot. <laughs> oh, that must have been so frustrating. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see, let's go on. Um, <clears throat> the storm and tempest helps make the final demonstration, the character, both of those who have chosen to serve Satan and those who have chosen to serve Christ. This statement in Desire of Ages, you know, I used to read this and, and think, man, that's going to be tough. In the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Well, that's a tough time. Admittedly, that is a tough time. And then I was reading along one time, and I just kind of stumbled onto this statement. It is safe to let go every earthly support and take the hand of him who lifted up and saved the sinking disciple on the stormy sea. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. It's safe. Tough time, but safe. But that got my curiosity up. I do have some level of curiosity, I fear. And it's so easy, so I just typed in every earthly support, hit the button, and bam! We can never perfect a round, full Christian experience until every earthly support is removed and the soul centers its entire affections about God. Exactly when was the last time that it was a good thing for Christians to depend on earthly support? It's just that we've all done it. We're all used to it. And God has to, for the sake of developing our faith, he has to um, assist us. <laughs> assist us in cutting loose from every earthly support. Because that's the goal. 
Oh, I don't have it in here. It's in that little pamphlet that I passed out. I got an announcement to make about that too. Um, the sweetest and most wonderful, I can't remember, um, the sweetest and most wonderful uh, experience of the human condition or something like that is entire dependence on God. Something, I forget the wording. Anyhow, it's a great statement. It's in the little pamphlet. Okay, going on. Yeah, I think it's safe to go on. <clears throat> so what to do now? Okay. We are, unfortunately, still working on some really basic issues, most of us. I, you know, if there are exceptions, my apologies. I don't mean to uh, slight your, uh, your, your circumstances. But I think most of us are still working on the whole self-denial, self-sacrifice thing. It's just a part of the human condition. It's a part of the, generally speaking, the Christian condition. I think it's, a, generally speaking, a part of the Adventist condition. We've got some work to do there yet. That being the case, we clearly need a bonehead Christianity class. Fortunately, God is big on remedial education. We should all sign up for this class. God desires everyone to understand the hateful character of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding his human family against its terrible deceptive power. The first result of the entrance of sin into the world was the birth of principles of selfishness. The design of the gospel is by means of remedial missionary work to confront this evil of selfishness and destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. What are you saying? What did it say? The design of the gospel means remedial missionary. Who is being remedied? That's us. <laughs> We're the ones who need the remedy. We need the experience of enterprises of benevolence. We need to seek out intelligent opportunities for self-denial and self-sacrifice. Uh, don't look at that. <laughs> Sorry, that's in the wrong spot there. shouldn't be there. It should be invisible right now. Could it be? Could it be? This, this is a very serious question in my mind. Could it be? In 1892, the loud cry had already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, though the world knew nothing about it. Very likely no one in the church would have known it either if God hadn't told Ellen White. It was a classic case of despise not the day of small beginnings. It was too small for our radar to catch. God saw it. What were those beginnings? The proclamation of the 1888 message, Theology, by A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner, and others. Don't, don't argue with that. <laughs> In addition... The revelation of the righteousness of Christ through the applied theology of, of, uh, that's what happens when you're typing late at night, I guess. Oh, of, okay, of these three things. There we go. <laughs> of the orphanage, the visiting nurses program, and the Christian help bands. Remember, we all, we went over all that on Wednesday, I guess it was. Okay. Now, if there's anybody in the sound booth, I forgot to mention this to anybody in the sound booth. 
I want to play a video. I hope the audio will accompany it. Hello? Anyone in the sound booth? <laughs> I see someone standing up and waving at me. I like people like that. They're on the ball and they're paying attention, even listening to yahoos that forget to tell them in advance. Okay. That's what happened in 1892. These were the enterprises of benevolence. Now think back over the last seven years. All about this free clinic, uh, which runs through Friday, and it's not just about dental care. We're talking about massages and haircuts and you name it. Good morning, Sandra. And today is the final day of a three-day health clinic at the Los Angeles Convention Center. People who are uninsured or underinsured can get free medical and dental services. No insurance or identification is required, and you do not need an appointment. This is so extensive. They're offering haircuts, free clothing, as well as surgery for a lot of the people here who have been lined up overnight to get this free medical service. The mega clinic was organized by a nonprofit called Your Best Pathway to Health a humanitarian service of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that puts on mega clinics all over North America. A humanitarian clinic put on by Seventh-day Adventist Church. No ID, no insurance, no problem. We believe that Jesus served this way and loved this way, and that's what we want to do. We want to love like Jesus, serve like Jesus in Los Angeles. Services are offered on a first-come, first-served basis. They include uh, pediatrics and more, even tattoo removal, free clothing, free haircuts. Take a look right over here to my right. People already lined up. We are talking about free medical services to anyone who comes to the L.A. Convention Center today. Anything from root canals to even a gallbladder removal, free of charge. Sky 5 HD captured aerials of the crowd outside the L.A. Convention Center in downtown L.A. yesterday. 10,000 people are expected to pass through here over the next three days and organizers say they're going to try to process as many people as they can. This was so special to watch all the healing being done. It's called the best pathway to health. Unlike any other mega health clinic I've seen in LA, we're talking there were actual surgeries being performed inside the convention center today. I have an earlobe that is split that needs to be reconnected. So I thought about it in time for them to help me do it here, and they told me yesterday you have a plastic surgeon here, of all things, and I was fascinated that they have a plastic surgeon here, and he's gonna fix my ear today. $30 million worth in healthcare services, all provided to those in need, and this is just day one. Oh, these are nice. Yeah, they give you, yeah, they give, they give you, everything's new, then they give you. Oh, this is why I wear the church. A one-of-a-kind clinic that ends on noon on Friday. Speaking of free stuff, thousands of people are lining up again this morning for a second day of free health clinic at the L.A. Convention Center in downtown L.A. We're talking everything from eye checkups to full-blown root canals. One person even had a tumor removed. Organizers say they're able to offer the services for free thanks to thousands of volunteers. Del Flowers says without medical insurance and no job, he has not been able to get glasses until now. It's been uh, something I really needed. And if they were not doing this today, I wouldn't be getting my glasses. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has put on this massive clinic in cities across the country. It's the first time organizers have brought it to Los Angeles in its third year. Well, Los Angeles is such a huge uh, marketplace and there's so much need. We hear about and we see on the news uh, the homeless, the, uh, the, the poverty, and when uh, Adventist uh, uh, services put this together, our hospital felt a, a deep uh, sense of, um, of joy about being part of this. 
And again, anyone is welcome, no questions asked. They, like thousands of others, can't afford insurance or the co-pays and stood in line for hours, even days outside the L.A. Convention Center to make sure they got in. This couple flew all the way from Washington after seeing the same Seventh-day Adventist organized health care clinic in Spokane. A charity called Your Best Pathway to Health offered free medical care to all comers in Los Angeles. Look at the reaction with Carter Evans. They lined up by the thousands for a chance to see a doctor, dentist, or optometrist, all medical volunteers offering their services for free. The dentists and hygienists you see here are just some of 4,300 volunteers who make this clinic possible. It's two and a half days. They expect to treat 10,000 patients and give away $30 million in medical services. This is saving lives. This is just like a doctor's office. That is one strong and sweet spirit there. Again, this was put on by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The clinic is being staged by Your Best Pathway to Health. That is a group that helps bring medical care to the needy. Repairing the whole body, mind, and spirit. San Francisco, Oakland, San Antonio, Spokane, Los Angeles, Beckley, West Virginia, Phoenix, Fort Worth, plus dozens of AMAN clinics coordinated through the Adventist Medical Evangelistic Network. Could it be? Could it be that we could claim to be in the beginning of the loud cry? I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you. I think we can, for one more reason. As Lucifer sees that we are making efforts to work the cities as if we meant to give the last message. Okay? Now, just stop there. What do you suppose as if we meant to give the last message means? How would you paraphrase that? I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear. I, I'm, I'm over time already. I gotta have to hurry. Here's my editorial gloss onto that. I would say, why don't we follow the directions this time? <laughs> okay? As if we meant to do it, let's do it the way God asked us to do it. Okay? Now, finish out that statement. Up at the top, ignore the bottom so far. Sorry about that. When Lucifer sees that, his wrath will be aroused and he will employ every device in his power to hinder the work. Now, I have to back up to get that other statement. What does it mean to follow the directions? Henceforth, medical missionary work is to be carried forward with an earnestness with which it has never yet been carried. This work is the door, the door, singular, the definite article, the door through which the truth is to find entrance to the large cities. What happens if we follow directions on our work for the cities? Lucifer gets mad. You know, there was supposed to be a pathway to health this last summer. Didn't happen. So, what are the odds that this pandemic might be one of Satan's devices? Satan seems pretty nervous about cities, by the way. Right? I mean, it says when, when he sees that we're starting to do the right thing, he, he freaks out, right? What did it say? Is that every device in his power. It's like he throws the kitchen sink at it. I have had a tendency to look at cities as being incorrigibly evil. And there's lots of that around. 
you know what? The devil has a whole bunch of unhappy, un, unhappy customers in cities. And if anybody ever came along and showed him something better, I think he's a little nervous on that. Okay, now let's see. <clears throat> the followers of Christ know little of the plots which Satan and his hosts are forming against them. But he who sitteth in the heavens will overrule all these devices for the accomplishment of his deep designs. The Lord permits his people to be subjected to the fiery ordeal of temptation, not because he takes pleasure in their distress and affliction, but because this process is essential to their final victory. He could not consistently with his own glory, shield them from temptation. For the very object of the trial is to prepare them to resist all the allurements of evil. Hold the phone. God's not going to shield us from temptation? We got a promise for that. He can't just dump us. Look what the Bible says. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What do you mean he can't shield us from temptation? Of course he keeps his promise. But at the end of time, he keeps that promise by preparing them to resist all the allurements of evil. He has to. In the, the, just the nature of the great controversy, he has to step back like he did with Job and say, Satan, you're a witness. Give him your best shot. He'll stand. We are to be prepared to resist all the allurements of evil. And you know what? That's going to mean self-denial and self-sacrifice. And those of us and I count myself at risk, who find that unpalatable, will be deceived. Because that's all it takes to be willing to be deceived. <clears throat> How is God going to make this final and full demonstration? Remember Lucifer's accusation? He said the law was arbitrary, that it was what it was just because God said that's what it was going to be, and God... God could change it anytime he wanted by just saying the new law is, right? And God said, no, it's not arbitrary and it's impossible to change. So Lucifer came back with his, and he said, that's number seven, right? Accusation seven? That's the, the right hook. I don't know which way I had it, but anyhow, that's, that's this one. And number eight is this one, right? Lucifer comes back with his killer punch. Okay, God. If you can't change your law, that means you can't forgive anyone because if the law is beyond your control, so is the penalty. That's the only way that... You know, I used to read that, that argument. Lucifer says the, the, the law means you can't forgive. And I said, that's, a, that's like the stupidest thing in the world. How could that make any sense? And it wasn't until it finally... I'm, I'm a little slow out the gate sometimes, but I'm, I'm talking decades here trying to figure this one out. Okay, finally... I recognize the correlation between accusation 7 and accusation 8. He says, you can change it. God says, no, I can't. And he comes back and says, if you can't change it, you can't stop the penalty. <laughs> Ignore that. <laughs> Satan laid his plans to wrest from God the noble Adam and his companion Eve. This is just shortly after the creation of earth, of course. If he could in any way beguile them into disobedience, 
God would make some provision or they might be pardoned. And then he himself and all the fallen angels would be in a fair way to share with them of God's mercy. Do you follow his logic here? He says, he's, 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 you know, Adam and Eve have been created. He's thinking, man, I'm in a mess. I've been kicked out of heaven. I can never get back in. This is, this is really bad. I've got to do something about this. And I know God loves these guys over here. Really, in a special way, he loves them. Because I, I remember the whole argument about creating them. I was there. I fought it. God loves these guys over here. If I can get them to sin, God's going to find a way to save them. And the only way he can do that is change the law. And if he changes the law, ding, I win. Down the bottom, he reasoned that if God pardoned sinful man whom he had created, he would also pardon and receive into favor him and his angels. But he was disappointed. <laughs> disappointed. That's, that's like pretty classic understatement right there. <laughs> like maybe enraged. Uh, Tipped over the edge into permanent homicidal mania? I don't know. It's like, yeah, he was disappointed, all right. But how does this work? <clears throat> Lucifer couldn't imagine any way to forgive without changing the law. He thought he had God in a box. Those humans you thought it was such a good idea to create? Yeah, they sin. So they have to die. Uh, uh, unless, of course, you decide to be reasonable and change your law. But either way, I win. Right? If it's proven that creating human beings was a bad idea, Lucifer wins. Because God erred in his judgment, and Lucifer was right. If it's proved that the law has to be changed in order to save human beings, Lucifer wins. Because he said the law was changeable. This guy's crafty. Satan numbers the world as his subjects, but the little company who keep the commandments of God are resisting his supremacy. Now, this is at the end of time. If he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be complete. Stop right there and think about that. If he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be complete. We think he's done, defeated, dead, and just post-haste history gone. He doesn't think so. If he could defeat God's people, his triumph would be complete. I don't know what all that means, but just notice it. Because he's still in this race. He's, he's, he's still a dog in the fight. Let's put it that way. Okay, his triumph would be complete. He sees, now this is at the close of probation, right? He sees that holy angels are guarding them, and he infers that their sins have been pardoned, but he does not know that their cases have been decided in the sanctuary above. He has an accurate knowledge of the sins which he has tempted them to commit, and he presents these before God in the most exaggerated light, representing this people to be just as deserving as himself of exclusion from the favor of God. He declares that the Lord cannot in justice forgive their sins and yet destroy him and his angels. That's arbitrary. You can't do that, God. It's the same argument at the end of time, at the close of probation. So what is God going to do about this final claim? He's going to show through his people, that's why Jesus couldn't do it, because now the demonstration has to be made by those who were once participatory sinners. Because it's a different category. This isn't, Jesus, in this one regard, was an apple, and we're an orange. You've got to make that distinction or you get all confused. Okay? He's going to show through his people that he doesn't need to change the law in order to be just. 
He's going to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If I haven't mentioned it yet, faith is kind of a big thing. <laughs> of course, Satan has a few words to say about this. Oops, I'm sorry. Let's see. Oh, um, okay, we've read that before. I put it in here for a reason, though. Let me think what that reason was. I've completely forgotten. I'm sorry. It's a great quote. <laughs> okay. It had something to do with something. I'm sure it did. Um, as I said, Satan has a few words to say about this whole plan of God. Oh, well, okay, there's more to come here. Let's see. God works to prepare them to resist all the... Okay, that's kind of a rehash of going back of how, what's, how he's going to, to do that. But once again, <laughs> sorry, Satan has a few words to say. There they are. That's what Satan says. This is the only time that Satan argues against God's power. Always before, it's love and wisdom. Now it's power. He says, you can't do that. You are not going to get those guys to make that demonstration. When pigs fly. What that means is he's still looking at the, as God's law as arbitrary. There's no basis in reality to it in his mind. God, of course, sees it differently. He knows that the law of heaven is every bit as real as the law of gravity. Now think of the difference here. You've got a speed limit. Somebody down at City Hall or someplace makes that up. You've got gravity. Yeah, yeah, gravity's just kind of there. <laughs> you know, it's like, go to city council sometime. Yeah, you know, I've been watching things, and down there at the skate park, there have been uh, too many kids getting hurt. Uh, we need to back off on the gravity. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> now, gravity is, this is just an illustration, right? No illustration is perfect, but, okay. God knows that the law of heaven is every bit as real as the law of gravity. Laws like that, like gravity, don't depend on the king or the parliament or Congress or city hall. They come from a, a greater reality than any of those things. And so does the law of sin and death. It comes from a greater reality than just God said so. Satan can see no way but to change it. How can you stop it? This, these guys sinned. Kill them. There's no way to stop it. He looks at God like King Nebuchadnezzar. He's stuck with a law that he cannot change, even though it's going to cost the life of someone he loves. You ever wonder why that story's in there? That's why that story's in there. Nebuchadnezzar is stuck with a law that he can't change the law of the Medes and the Persians and Daniel's going to be thrown in the lion's den. And Lucifer looks at that and says, yeah, 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 God. You had to send an angel. You had to work a miracle. That's arbitrary stuff. Interference. We're not talking. That's Throw that out of court. You can't do that, God. If you do that for them, you've got to do it for me. But God is not like Nebuchadnezzar. He's like King Ahasuerus. 
He's also stuck with the law. He can't change. He's also in danger of losing one that he loves. But they came up with an answer that time. There's another law, a second law. It didn't do away with the first one, but it counteracted it in, a, in as, as natural a way as those kind of laws could. You see what I'm saying? So it works that way with flying. Pigs don't fly well. Planes do. Planes don't do away with gravity. They just use the law of aerodynamics. God doesn't do away with the law of sin and death. He just uses the law of faith and the spirit of life. Romans 8.2 In the end, it all comes right back to where Lucifer fell. It all comes back to faith. And that's a huge challenge. I'm going to leave you with, all, all, with an amazing and yet kind of a downer statement. My last slide. It's an amazing statement, but the magnitude of the challenge should not escape you. This is a description of God's people in that final test, time of Jacob's trouble. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them, as to Jacob in his distress, that God himself has become an avenging enemy. It is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of his people to look out of and away from self to one who can bring help and salvation, that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering trust. Here, faith is proved. Faith is kind of a big thing. We're right back to where Lucifer fell. And before Gabriel and friends want to, I mean, seriously, they have every reason in the world to say, Jesus, you know, don't bring the folks up here yet. Let's get this faith thing straightened out before we do that. We already went through it once with Lucifer. Let's not do that again. And God says, that's a reasonable request. We're going to do that. We're going to prove to the universe that the law of God does not change, but the law of God has room for mercy. But it has room for mercy for those who will, by faith, come back into harmony with it. This is no light call. And, and, and look up there, you know, God himself has become an avenging enemy. This is, this is the, the language of the avenger of blood from the Old Testament, right? You remember the story? If you accidentally killed someone, you ran for the nearest city of refuge, and the avenger of blood was on your heels, and his job was to kill you. And now here's Jesus, the one who made all your promises, the one for whom you've given up your your, your family, your home, your job, you're, you're out in the wilderness, you're surrounded by yahoos with AK-47s, they're all waiting to kill you. You've given up everything for God. I'm standing up for you, God. And then, to you, he appears as an avenging enemy, ready to kill you. This is the hardest test of faith. It's the test which must be passed. It's the test of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
It's the test of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And nevertheless, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the test of undying, unswerving, unvarying faith. Faith is kind of a big thing. This is no light calling. We are soldiers. And a soldier's life is never intended to be soft and easy. This is a war. And our only hope is in following implicitly the orders of the commander of the army of the Lord. This is the way of life. This is the walk of faith. And this is how the great controversy ends, as far as those accusations go. Yeah, there's another thing to be done a thousand years later, kind of a mop-up incident. That's, that's a whole different story. It's fascinating, too. We could go into that, but certainly not now. I hope this has made sense, and I know it's kind of looking at it from a different angle some, on some things. Um, feel free to get in touch with me. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, <clears throat> we are not nearly motivated enough, and yet we would love to see this controversy end. We pray that you will be with us, that you will piece by piece, gently, sometimes rough if necessary, I suppose, take our dependence on the world away. Grant that we may depend only on you. Grant that we may develop that faith, that we might have that remedial benefit of enterprises of benevolence. And some of us, at least, Father, send us to the cities. Let us shake the gates of hell and rescue the prisoners there. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.